Given the last year when you had some very other notable figures now in handcuffs or, you know, facing kind of like serious legal charges, mm. how does it impact you? Do you feel pressure that you are sort of this, the face of legitimacy for crypto? Does that impact what you say? Do you find yourself living life differently? What is the weight mm. of that yeah. do to you? I mean, it definitely puts more pressure on me. Ladies and gentlemen, today is a true, true delight. Uh, this is someone I've been a fan of for a very, very long time. Uh, this is someone who's had, continues to have deep impact in the space that I work in. And I really think like all of technology and even if it's not for his work in, you know, uh, crypto, I really think he's one of the, you know, smartest, deepest thinkers, a lot of fields. Uh, so it is a pleasure to welcome somebody who genuinely needs uh, no introduction. The one, the only, the co-founder of Ethereum, Vitalik Buterin. Vitalik! Welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much, Sharon and Arathi. It's good to be here. <laughs> um, okay, we're going to start you off on uh, an easy question. All right. So mm -hmm. uh, it's been mildly, to put it mildly, an eventful year in the world of crypto. Mm -hmm. When we look back, the merge yeah. um, um, is honestly maybe one of the uh, greatest software development projects undertaken by mankind. I generally think so. I would say very much in the good bucket. Yeah. And, but also, you know, as an industry, we've had to deal with, you know, some very famous people and companies uh, blowing up. So my question to you is, if you had to kind of look back on the last 12, 16, 18 months, what do you see as the good? What do you see as the bad? And maybe more interesting is, what are beliefs of yours that you feel have been reinforced? And what are beliefs or priors that you have now shifted? I think the biggest uh, shift in my thinking over the last 18 months or so has been this uh, realization that uh, basically Ethereum and like real and crypto more broadly really are moving from this uh, kind of earlier phase where things were still being figured out. It was still mostly being experimented on within a yes, small community. And there's uh, really good tech being developed, but there wasn't uh, you know, too much like, very large scale stuff happening yeah. into a yeah, technology that, that really needs to be ready for the world and uh, needs to be ready to solve, um, you know, real world problems for people, right? Like for the, yeah, basically, you know, first maybe five to seven years of Ethereum, like there's a lot of things that were being discussed and a lot of things that be, were being worked on. If you listen to presentations from me back from 2015 or 2016, I was talking about the same things I'm talking about now. Like, yeah. I, you know, you could hear me talking about the importance of proof of stake. Uh, you could hear me talking about the importance of scalability and the importance of privacy, right? Yeah. And uh, I did actually, for one of my present presentations, dug up a slide that I gave in uh, Taipei in uh, 2017. And one of the slides there, like basically, Literally said, like, you know, the top uh, three problems of Ethereum are, I um, you know, scalability and privacy and wallet security. Core topics for me, technological level, are basically the same. And, uh, you know, it's basically, I think, settled and continues to be settled that those are the important things. But what's changed is the level of uh, detail and the level of uh, specificity at which some of those discussions uh, have been had. Right, so proof of stake is uh, basically get you know out, and we do still need to improve the proof of stake algorithm over time, right? But it's mm -hmm. uh, 
a lot less theoretical and a lot more of this kind of practical, let's respond to real world problems like, oh, you know, we might have an issue with validator centralization. Let's like figure out what are the specific things that are preventing more validators from being willing to solo stake, for example. Like, oh, you know, we have these rollups, but what does it actually take to get those uh, rollups out to the point where the average user is on a rollup? Um, you know, do we have to standardize things? Uh, you know, do we yet have to make it easier for wallets to work across rollups? Um, there's a lot more of these ecosystem coordination uh, tasks that are happening. Mm-hmm. Um, another big shift, I think, has been this shift from like focusing on the abstract and focusing on making the platform as general purpose as possible into uh, uh, questions of like what are some changes that would make it much more concretely useful and like solve you know, mm-hmm. specific problems that we've identified. Like one recent change, I think, is that we're starting to become more okay with enshrining more features in the protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, so like basically instead of uh, saying like, oh, you know, a transaction is going to be just a call and everything else can be built by users on top. The platform is going to be maximally abstract, like actually being willing to be opinionated about a couple of more things in the base protocol itself, because if those things are opinionated, then I mean, you can actually protect those features. You can upgrade them over time. You can ensure that, you know, users get censorship-resistance guarantees, for example. Um, You know, you can ensure that they they can be as efficient as possible. More and more of this, like, solid focus on, like, you know, what are the the features that that users, or what are the problems that users have, and, like, what are things people need, and, like, going towards serving those things. Mm -hmm. Got it. Um but doesn't adding more features into the platform, into the you know, core infra, does it not make it less general purpose? It doesn't have to. Um, right? Like there's a type of feature that involves making the protocol more complex. Mm-hmm. And there is a type of feature that involves keeping the complexity the same or even sometimes reducing it a little, but still okay. at the same time pushing it in directions that sometimes solve problems directly, but sometimes just enable solving problems. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, uh, you know, kind of just de- diving a bit deeper, uh, you wrote this post recently, which I think you just kind of referred to, which is you talked about the three transitions. Uh, you talked about L2, L2 scalability. You talked about mm-hmm. wallet security, kind of the op- contact abstraction that brought bucket of things. And you talked about privacy. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm curious, like if you kind of had to stack rank them, and if you, had, you know, if you had to maybe kind of like generate, you know, kind of focus the energy of the community into be like, hey, this is something to kind of like deeply care about. Like, what would you pick and what order and why? I think top priority is scalability. Like for the average user, the system is too expensive to use in a lot of cases, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, like, uh, yeah, let's take, for example, like names, right? Like ENS. Mm. That's... Uh, you know, there's a lot of decentralized, uh, you know, social media things happening for like, you know, we've been talking about us, you know, Farcaster uh, where mm-hmm. recently there's uh, a bunch more. Mm-hmm. And like, it's nice if all of these things can actually be on a uh, decentralized naming system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, challenge is that, you know, ENS as it exists, uh, you know, it uh, takes like, several dollars to pay the transaction fees and sometimes that amount even goes up like if Ethereum becomes more successful it might go up to $50 and like these are not acceptable amounts for a social network right like for a social network people want you know set up of an account to be like you know free or 
maybe nearly free. Um, mm-hmm. Like if it's a few cents, then that then that's fine. Mm-hmm. But you know, you don't want this thing where it costs yeah. you know some random number between zero and two hundred, as then right. you know you can't really get rely on it to be less than that. Um, and you know, I think that's true for payments, like the whole using Bitcoin or Ethereum to pay for things, vision, like it basically broke because the fees were too high. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like lots of things broke because the fees are high, right? And I think yeah. that you know, if you don't solve that, then mm-hmm. like there's not much point in having other or in uh, trying to solve other things. What's the benchmark or gold standard for payments, for example? Is it more like replacing Web two transactions, like credit card processing, that kind of thing? Like, what do you look for on like? This is the delta or the gap to go bridge. So the target that I had set for the ecosystem back in 2018 was um, under five cents a transaction. Okay. And I'm still sticking to it. That's amazing. A couple of years ago, I'd have been like, wow, that's kind of audacious, kind of a very ambitious goal. But, you know, in just the last year or so, the yeah. progress has just been like amazing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you mentioned Farcaster, you know, obviously, you know, uh, I'm involved with, uh, you know, what they're building. But I do think like you what you pointed out that, uh, if somebody's signing up for a social network, you know, if it's going to cost a un- indefin- undefined amount of money, if right. it's going to be slow, you already have a hard enough time getting people to use something new, um, and these just get in the way. So I think one scalability, but then second, for example, uh, the ability, for example, products to pay gas fees on behalf of people signing up, etc. Like those are like just like very very and uh, speed. And speed, yeah, and speed. Obviously, you know, are like yeah. really interesting for those of us kind of work in the ecosystem. You know, this might be like kind of like ad nauseum, but for if somebody's new to crypto, I guess one question they would ask, just looking at the last year, is there's been a lot of negative headlines on crypto, right? And I think a lot of us who work in the space, we probably talked about it a million times in various formats. But you know, I have to ask. So you know, if you look at all the all the bad stuff which has happened uh, over the last year. What are lessons do you think for the industry, or what are things that you, what do you now believe that you maybe you didn't last year? I think uh, one thing that like everything in the last uh, one and a half years has made me appreciate more is just the need to like really focus on the yeah, values in the ecosystem and uh, you know focus on the long term fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Like basically, yeah, you know, ask the question like, is this something where it makes mathematical sense for it to survive for, um, you know, even 10 years, I mean, if, uh, if not a hundred and is this, uh, you know, something where the way that blockchains are used actually makes sense. And it doesn't make sense to just, um, you know, run the thing on a yeah, regular database. And finally, like, is the thing congruent with the values that the crypto space is, is uh, trying yeah. to elevate, right? Like getting people 19% annual interest rates is like, uh, not sustainable, and it's like totally not the thing that mm-hmm. uh, you know Satoshi was exci- was excited about, or the cypherpunks were excited about, or any of that, right? right. right. And uh, I think you know there are a lot of people that just uh, were sort of naively following trends, and they saw like, oh, you know, DeFi today is giving um, you know twelve percent interest rates. Uh, Some t- like during the liquidity boom era of the of the two thousand and twenty, yeah. Sometimes the yeah, liquidity farming rates all got all the way up to like 90%, right? Mm-hmm. And like there was this big story where the narrative was, hey, DeFi can give you higher interest rates than uh, TradFi, and this is why DeFi will succeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like none of those people were actually able to articulate a sustainable story of why mm-hmm. DeFi should be able to give you know, better interest rates than TradFi, right? They were just saying like, hey, look at what's happening today. You know, this will obviously this will only grow, right? Yeah. And I think what we've seen since then is that, in the best case, 
the interest rates just uh, kind of quietly and slowly drops down to, you know, 3%, 2%, fairly reasonable numbers, mm-hmm. sometimes zero. And in the unhappy case, like, you know, you had, you know, Duke one and, uh, you know, the whole Tierra Luna thing, and it basically blew up and like mm-hmm. destroyed, you know, $20 billion of people's money, right? So you have to like look at that kind of long-term sustainability. Um, one thing that really just stood up as a red flag on FTX, I think, both to me and to a lot of people in the Ethereum ecosystem. But like, uh, I think a lot of people have this misconception that like, oh, everybody deeply respected Sam and, uh, you know, he caught the entire ecosystem by surprise. And I think it is true that nobody expected a uh, literal, um, you know, $8 billion blow up. But if you look at like even some Ethereum influencers, like even, you know, like, you know, Anthony's the son, uh, like some of, uh, some of those, like, a lot of them disrespected, you know, him and FTX from the beginning. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons why was that he was just not able to articulate a vision of why uh, crypto is good, right? Like he just clearly basically, um, you know, saw it as purely a, yeah, a business opportunity, mm-hmm. right? It's like, oh, hey, you know, crypto is this thing where you can make money. Yeah. And, you know, Fairly late in the uh, in the whole situation, like in 2022 in June, you know, he was uh, finally that uh, he came out with this tweet thread, and honestly, the tweet thread was not super impressive. Like it was basically, yeah, you know, regurgitating other people's uh, you know perspectives of like, oh, you know, disintermediation is good, creating more open markets is good, and like you know all of the you know things that have been said by influencers for years, and. Like, he just, I think, never really struck the community as a person who deeply believed it. Mm-hmm. And that, like, that more than anything else might really be, like, the kind of the cause of the yeah, distrust that, you know, existed already. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, yeah, like, that's it. This is the thing that, like, I'm, you know, realizing, right? That, like, we yeah, really need to start creating things that have that kind of like both sort of like sustainability with respect to users, but also this kind of like values alignments, right? Like where the thing that you're trying to build to build and uh, the things that you're trying to give people are actually yeah. congruent with, you know, the properties and the, yeah, and the vision that the technology mm-hmm. have. And like, that's the sort of thing I want to see more of. I've been spending a lot of time with uh, policymakers and, you know, others. And, you know, I've been kind of talking about something which I'm kind of curious whether you agree with, uh, tied to what you just talked about with, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like some of the blows last year, which is, uh, you know, financialization or over-financialization is kind of like one part of crypto, but the core of crypto ideals, like decentralization, uh, credible neutrality, you know, pretty much like the canon of blog posts when you kind of go or scroll through your site. Financialization is sort of an aspect, but that is not the core mm-hmm. piece of that. Um, and some ways, I think you could argue maybe over-financialization has hurt crypto because it kind of like, you know, brings in bad actors and it kind yeah. of distorts incentives. Do you agree with that? You know, how do you kind of see uh-huh. uh, f- uh, financialization? And when I, when I say that, I just very mean the incentive to go make money in yeah. any sort of product crypto. Uh, do you see that as, uh, how do you kind of see that in sort of the spectrum of incentives that crypto brings to the table? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've made many critiques of like different aspects of finalization on uh, my blog, right? Like one of the one of the big ones uh, that I've made is like the fact that if you just look at like make a standard econ you know econ one hundred one analysis of how financialization interacts with governance, like you realize that it's just incredibly broken, 
right? Mm. And then we see things happen in practice. And, uh, you know, we see it, but people for a few years, like I think seriously thought of uh, token holder voted DAOs as being some kind of magic and amazing re uh, revolution. And like, you know, crypto is good because like everything, including governance will be tokenized, right? Mm -hmm. Do an econ 101 analysis. Like that doesn't actually work because, uh, you know, you're like, as your the amount of uh, money that you have goes up, like the, uh, the influence that you have on your, on the portion of the thing that you benefit from goes up quadratically, right? Mm -hmm. So the whole thing just like quickly becomes a plutocracy and like, this is not like some kind of like, you know, abstract Marxist critique of like, uh, you know, capitalism <laughs> always gets worse and worse or anything like that. It's like a very specific argument about, you know, token holder governance, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like people had a hard time like really interpreting that and like, you know, they wanted narratives of like, you know, either kind of capitalism good or capitalism bad or like, uh, you know, tokens good. But it's like that intersection just ended up being really pathological in a bunch of ways, right? And like, I think now, you know, there is like much less enthusiasm about, you know, token voting as a governance strategy. It's like people use it because they have to have governance of some kind and mm -hmm. that like nothing better has really been legitimized yet, right? So like that would be yet, you know, one aspect. And then the whole NFT situation, I think, uh, I mean, it's interesting because it's a it's this mixed bag. Like, mm. I visited Africa in uh, February, and I met some of the people from the African NFT community. And there's like really fascinating art there, right? Like, there's this uh, kind of mo artistic movement uh, called Afrofuturism, right, which tries to mix like elements of uh, you know traditional African aesthetics with this uh, you know kind of sci-fi future where you have uh, you know people Wakanda and Black Panther. Exactly that. Yeah, exactly. Like in, in that exact direction, yeah. right? And there were people like putting a lot of deep thought and deep work into these um, NFTs. And uh, there was this like really yeah, fascinating and like, kind of advanced NF um, NFT community that like did a good job of combining the the cultural and the financial and making them work with each other. Mm -hmm. But then on the other side, you know, you have these uh, like three million dollar monkeys. And then, uh, you know, you have this, like, you know, these token-gated clubs in New York mm -hmm. City that are basically, uh, you know, reinventing stuff that, like, people from the 1960s and 70s that I think people already get, started to get under, under, consider lame in the early 2000s. But then, like, ooh, it's an ERC-20, it becomes unlame mm -hmm. again. It's this weird mixed bag, and I think uh, there is good stuff, but... The challenge that I see with like a lot of the less good stuff is that it creates this pressure to go in a direction which is like actually very yet you know unaligned with the yet yeah. with the other aspects of crypto and like yeah you know, it's a sort of thing that makes sense as a short term alliance but then like as a longer term alliance there like you know there's just yeah. a lot of tensions that start and they don't grow really quickly right like even like you know if you look at the the just how quickly, you know, values like, you know, self-custody, um, you know, freedom, um, you know, decentralization, mm -hmm. like all of these things. And like, just how quickly they just drop out from a lot of these um, NFT platforms, right? Like right. that's uh, one of those things that uh, concerns me often. I guess uh, when you say focusing more or going deeper into values more as like the lesson or the learning one another way to look at it, at least for me, was uh, mm -hmm. the tourists have left, 
right? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. the true residents, the builders, are sticking it out and actually building and just hunkering down. Um, mm-hmm. Is that kind of how you see it? Is that the right way to go portray it? Or like to me, it feels like yeah. there was this whole craze around, you know, you can say like there are good parts of NFTs, but then you had a lot of tourists coming in. Same with like, you know, the financial aspect aspect of it, where you just had a lot of people coming in just for that making a really quick return uh, kind of thing. Uh, but now that, you know, that market's kind of like frozen and, you know, there's just this chill over that. They've left, uh, leaving behind like the forecasters yeah. of the world, the, like the builders were just like hunkering down. Uh-huh. What? How do you yeah. feel about that? Yeah. yeah. I think that's one aspect to it. Um, I think another aspect to it is also the kind of users. Right. Um, So like one analogy that uh, um, Amir Taki, this uh, longtime crypto anarchist, I mean, of course, even in the Bitcoin land in 2013 Mm. um, made is um, he was talking about like Linux and Ubuntu and how like there was this whole movement in the 2000s of uh, trying to, you know, make Linux on the desktop habit, right? And Basically, what happened was both Linux and the uh, open source movement as a whole um, it basically made this choice of uh, like they're going to dilute themselves in order to become you know more user friendly and more friendly to mainstream users and to like mainstream capital funders, right? Mm-hmm. And even the the word open source is uh, is part of that, right? Mm-hmm. Because like the earlier movement was called free software, mm-hmm. and uh, the new thing was called open source, mm-hmm. and uh, you know like. Like free, like, you know, it has that substance, right? Like it has, uh, you know, that vibe of like, hey, you know, we're actually trying to create a social structure that's that, you know, empower, changes power relationships. But mm-hmm. then when you say open source, it's uh, like, it feels like this sort of thing that everyone can get behind. Mm-hmm. And when everyone, everyone can get behind something in some sense, that's actually, yeah, it can be a sign that there, that like in some sense, there's no content at all, mm-hmm. right? Like that's not always true, mm-hmm. but I think uh, you know it, it's kind of uh, similar to how um, you know if you try to make a uh, scientific hypothesis that's like compatible with every possible future, like it's not actually science. Right? Mm, interesting. And Mirataki's viewpoint is like actually, yeah, Linux should go back to like basically go back to serving you know the the, the geeks and like the, the community that like is smaller, but instead of getting a one point one x benefit, they get a ten x benefit. Just to disagree on that a little bit, Ubuntu actually Should came on a big part. Live through that yeah, tool? because Ubuntu would actually you know, ship series right. to us and so on. The, the yeah. other lens I would have of, of it is pragmatism, uh-huh. right? Like one could argue that what Ubuntu did and the, some of the additions, but they had closed source drivers. You know, right. it wasn't the yeah. Richard right. Stallman free as in speech, yeah. um, right. you know, GPL code right. stuff. Uh, but you could argue that that directly led to the work in Android where, you yeah. know, you now have mm-hmm. some child or descendant yeah. of Linux running on, right. you know, millions of devices. And in a world where we were all running Richard Stallman's GNU herd, and, you yeah. know, we would have never seen that alternative. But I want to maybe kind of ask a slightly personal question, uh, which I kind of been fascinated about, because uh, one of the things which always mm-hmm. fascinates me about you is mm-hmm. in the absence of any of us knowing who Satoshi is, he, she, they, or maybe sentient mm-hmm. G- GPT-10 coming back from the future mm-hmm. or GPT-20, right? You are the most visible person in crypto. One of your favorite posts that you've ever written is the one about legitimacy being a scarce resource. Uh, Someday, Mm -hmm. I always say I want to write a book on that. Um, And I think it's safe to say that you bring a lot of legitimacy to Ethereum. I'm not sure whether you see that your role that way, but I think a lot of other people do. 
Uh, and now, given the last year when you had some very other notable figures, uh, you know, now, you know, uh, in handcuffs or, you know, facing kind of like serious legal charges. Uh-huh. Do you feel, how does it impact you? Do you feel pressure that you are sort of this, the face of legitimacy for crypto? Does that impact what you say? Do you find yourself living life differently? What is the weight mm-hmm. of that yeah. do to you? I mean, it definitely puts more pressure on me. Like it's, I mean, there's just like basic effects. Like, um, you know, I have to try to wear, um, you know, weird hats to reduce the chance that people <laughs> see me in public. And like, if, uh, you know, someone runs up to me and like, but now like, but now like I could just like tap on the, uh, on the side of my head and pretends to be in a call and uh, like here i'll just put on the hat it's like right here right so you just that uh, you know you have this and then you know bullet this and then like you know it's like there right yeah <laughs> yeah but it's the sort of stuff that like i actually have to do these days hey, can, can, so, I, can i give you some thoughts on that hat by the way i saw which sure. at an event Right. right. No, um, you mentioned that, this to me. Yeah. yeah. You know, Vitalik is like, you know, there is kind of this invisible force field where you can sort of sense this <laughs> disturbance in the force, right? And I tell you, that hat doesn't, it's not hiding your identity. It's not making you into Clark Kent over there. Well, okay. So my theory on it is that the hat has a, a negative effect among people who are closer to the ecosystem, <laughs> but it has, like, it does have some hiding effect among people who are further. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, but outside of the hats, uh, but see, do you find yourself worrying about what you say, what you do, the weight of how it, uh, you know, what it means? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, I mean, sometimes I definitely like feel more responsibility to kind of be more active in terms of like adding new things to the plot. I guess. Like, there was definitely a lot of moments where, um, you know, a, a, but things that were happening in the crypto ecosystem, like, were being done by other people and often, um, you know, done by various, um, you know, kinds of unsavory people. And it seems like a lot of them have uh, kind of, you know, disappeared in various ways, right? Like, sometimes it's peaceful retirement, sometimes it's, uh, you know, some very, uh, you know, high-profile events like an arrest or some arrest in a country with questionable extradition laws. But yes, there were even uh, you know two cases of uh, arrest in the pa- in the past year. I think at least actually some lower-profile ones too, right? Like yeah. there's even some that we don't hear about. But it's in basically uh, interesting how sort of the number of uh, you know other characters that we can uh, you know count on is uh, decreasing and like. The, the, sub, it's not even just the number of characters. It's like you know how many we can act like how many we can actually count on, right? Like things just keep getting yeah. revealed about some of these um, you know other characters, and there's a lot of them who just become really big and then uh, you know have this long two year arc, and then at the end of the two year arc, they just uh, you know end up being completely disgraced. Yeah. And this is that like if you just look back to you know earlier seasons right like you know the season of you know 2016 to 2018 mm-hmm. do you remember eos yep yep yeah yeah you know the, the thing you know ethereum on steroids mm-hmm. it's like ethereum it supports smart contracts but it's better because it has high security they don't do that stupid evm stuff they let you run contracts directly in c plus plus or whatever mm-hmm. they uh, actually have governance because they have a yeah, a governance system based on a token they're actually decentralized like brendan bloomer like some of those other characters like got a, a whole bunch of money and we don't really hear from them much right 
Yeah. Like, it's a bit, like at some point, or how should I phrase this? A fundamental part of this uh, whole space turning into something that's actually useful for yeah. uh, you know people that get a great amount to get or can get a great amount of uh, value from it, right? Yeah. But we don't just mean technical people, right? Like I am um, like by which like I just mean people for whom crypto isn't a one point one x, but for whom crypto is a ten x, right? Like yeah. uh, you know people will want to participate more in international trade for. Um, mm-hmm. And are in places that where they yeah, you know feel locked out of that, for example, right? Like if uh, we want to focus on Diego space, it's actually yeah, you know useful for those kinds of things. Then uh, mm-hmm. like the kinds of stories that exist in the ecosystem should not involve um, you know four billion dollar ICOs out of which uh, big portions of the money went into like you know we don't really know where. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think it's I think it's so admirable because you know I was thinking about I was trying to friend about. This is going to sound weird, but LeBron James. Um, and right. and one of the things, if you think about LeBron's career, you know, he's had almost no scandal, um, mm-hmm. you know, and he's kind of always been this role model for not just on court, but off court. And if you kind of hear his interviews, he kind of takes that role very seriously because he sees this as role mm-hmm. model for uh, his community and the sport and so on. And you know, that's basketball. That's been on for a while. There's been others. You play a notable role in crypto, so I think it's really important. Which maybe leads to another interesting question, which is a lot of people, I asked some other celebrities this, uh, which is people often feel like they have a parasocial relationship with you know someone famous, right? They feel like they know you, they know your Wikipedia page, you know, they've seen some photos of you, there are some interesting- Video blogs. Lots of interesting yeah. memes, uh, uh, you know, lots of interesting memes about you. Mm-hmm. What do you think people would not know about you that you'd like to clear right now? To be honest, I'd kind of prefer people to know less about me sometimes. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want, you know, my life to be a, yeah, like a TV series for other people. Like, mm. that would just put more pressure on me and, and make me hate my life, you know? I know there's other, like, other people who lean into that, but, like, honestly, I really don't want to. Okay, changing gears, right? Like, I want to talk to you about uh, EF and Ethereum and the systems around it. And uh, the reason I bring that up is, uh, you know, when I think about... Uh, how to build a decentralized system and an organization that supports it uh, with the right incentive structure. Uh, it's credibly neutral. It has the trust of the community. I think what you have done over the last many, many years and what the EF has done um, is pretty, pretty notable. Um, and I think a lot of folks in the community uh, you know, would obviously very, very highly respect the work you've done. What if, if I were starting a new project today or a new effort today, what lessons can one learn from how you you and obviously the many other amazing people who work with you have dealt with the EF and kind of built something which is actually truly decentralized. Yeah, I think that what's interesting about the EF, right, is that like there's Ethereum, which is uh, in a lot of ways a technical experiment, but mm-hmm. then there's also the uh, Ethereum Foundation, which is a social experiment. And the social like side of it is basically like actually trying to you know, create this big ecosystem and actually turn it into, um, you know, something that is uh, very decentralized with uh, a lot. Like, and but like decentralized, like I don't mean no leaders, right? Like decentralization is not no leaders. Decentralization is many leaders, mm-hmm. right? And where there are lots of other people that are independently pushing lots of um, aspects of the ecosystem forward. And I didn't feel like, uh, you know, the, the, the early Ethereum community start 
I think uh, had a very good start, right? There were a lot of people outside of the foundation that were very interested in helping out even from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there have been a lot uh, more uh, more that have um, you know, really emerged and uh, kind of stepped forward in their own way over the last five years or so, right? The mm-hmm. client teams, wallet teams, um, people outside of the foundation, you know, submitting uh, various uh, proposals for Ethereum for participating in research. Right, like uh, you know, Zero like Spark, a uh, big um, zero knowledge group, but just all of these amazing teams that are kind of like really yeah, stepped up, become independent, um, you know, become uh, very yeah, strong, and at the same time, where we're still able to get this like very high level of uh, coordination between them, right? Like the L two teams are friends, you know, their dev teams are talk to uh, talk to each other, you know, they uh, talk to the Ethereum Foundation, they uh, you know, they they talk to me. They're willing to collaborate on standardization. There, there's this like really nice cooperative spirit uh, between you know the L2 teams, between the L1 client teams, like just across all of these different layers of the uh, ecosystem. And uh, I mean, one of the things I've been working on improving recently is like the ability of uh, this ecosystem to um, you know coordinate and like figure out you know what is the decentralized equivalent of a project manager mm-hmm. and like that exists right you can't order people around but you but you can convince people mm-hmm. right um but it's uh, like it is a thing that actually can work right like there's uh like if you look at some of the work that's uh has been happening within the account abstraction community for example like there's uh you know a couple of uh, people who's basically yeah, you know job it is to just talk to the other participants in the 4337 ecosystem and figure out what some of the next uh, standards should be and uh, you know gather all of these uh, opinions about you know what kinds of things they need what kinds of things that they care about and um, you know there's a lot of people who are willing to kind of have discussions and like actually get move things forward on that thread and like it's starting to um, really that you know actually happen more and more right i mean there's challenges right mm-hmm. like uh, one of the challenges is that if you're one of the bigger wallets then just your incentive to be standards compliant is much smaller right and yep. that you know the closer you are to a monopoly the more of that incentive is negative mm-hmm. uh, but uh, you know it's still happening right uh that's definitely you know something that makes me really happy right like uh, yeah you know we want to um, you know see an, an ecosystem where if you zap any one organization out of existence, or even if you zap any one country out of existence, um, then you know the the whole thing still continues, right? And I feel like we're actually very close to that. Like we're, I think, um, you know, closer to that than like almost any other, um, you know, crypto ecosystem. I mean, I think Bitcoin is comparable, mm-hmm. um, right? But it's. Uh, it's definitely something that like I personally really value and I definitely want Ethereum to keep improving on. Switching gears, uh, I want to talk to you about something uh, which mm-hmm. I know we've chatted a little private over, but uh, which is about Elon and Twitter. So yeah. uh, it's, been a, it's, been a, it's been an eventful eight, 10 months, obviously in many, many spheres. And so yeah. uh, I am curious, what have your observations, uh, opinions mm-hmm. been on this new era of Twitter because you're obviously very active on Twitter. Uh, there is mm. you are always in my comments offering to give me ETH if I just wire ETH. Uh, maybe that's not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm, that's actually been taken yeah. care of. I think I don't see that much these mm. days. You know, it's always been like a very eventful time. Uh, a, what are your thoughts and observations? And B, 
if Elon handed the role to you for a in- interesting period of time, and you were, you know, God, absolute dictator of Twitter for, I don't know, six months to a year, what would you do? Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> I think, I don't know, I'll start by you kind of answering the yet similar question of like, what kinds of things have I observed over the last, um, you know, eight months? Mm-hmm. Um, I think one one thing in Elon's favor is that a lot of people were predicting that like, oh, you know, 80% of the employees are gone and uh, very quickly. And this is totally, uh, you know, reckless. And obviously, as a result of this, there's like lots of deep internal domain knowledge that will be lost and like Twitter will literally fail on a technical level, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, not even people saying mean stuff, but like actually, yeah, you know, the website will stop working. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, there's a lot of people who are deeply convinced of this. And that just ended up being totally wrong. Like it ended up being much more wrong than I expected. Right? Like I expected, you know, more fa- significantly more technical failures than this, right? Mm. And like, to be fair, there were technical failures in November and December, but but like since then, that's kind of dropped off completely to the point where people don't even talk about that side of things, right? right? Mm-hmm. So I guess just interesting to look back on, right? I think, uh, you know, within, kind of, you know, our communities, there's always like one of these, you know, great debates of like, when you see complexity in society, like, does that complexity reflect some kind of, um, you know, deep experience that's accumulated over time that's really important? And, um, you know, to what extent is that sometimes just kind of entropy and bloat and, uh, you know, you need sort of mm-hmm. non-backwards compatible renewal. And I guess this sort of, this incident was like, one incident on the uh, second side of the argument. I mean, I think there's often many inc- many incidents on both sides of the argument, right? But it's uh, one of those uh, kind of small things. Yeah, I think one of the things which I think Elon really did um, mm. is he shifted the Overton window of what is uh, what is allowed mm. if you're running a technology company. And right. now I know of many CEOs, and some of them have talked about this in public, who have now done exactly the same thing Elon has done, and maybe not in as dramatic a style as Elon has done it, but whether it is uh, cutting back on the employee uh, headcount, or maybe it is doing things like making blue check verification a paid feature, all these things which Elon was really criticized for, Mm -hmm. you see a lot of his peers kind of kind of sneak through. And I think this would have been possible if he hadn't widened the Overton window of what was possible. Right. Yeah, yeah, that is uh, definitely yeah, true. Like, uh, you know, he, he is definitely very much a yeah, bulldozer, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, yeah, uh, referencing my yeah, bulldozer versus Vitocracy post for a, from a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, bulldozers are, uh, yeah, you know, tough and uh, complicated thing. They just have costs and benefits on both sides. Right. As far as blue checks go, I think that the blue check thing is a big, uh, like, to me, a mixed bag. And, like, I do think that Elon did mishandle a lot of it. The thing that I, yeah, I think, like, really, yeah, empathize with, with me, yeah, with the decision to radically reform blue checks is that I do think that blue checks were this kind of, like, realistically they were this de-, de facto class system, right? Mm-hmm. And like, I remember, like even just myself personally, right? Like when I yeah, got my own blue check, like back in uh, 2018 of like, like I definitely felt like that warm glow of like, <laughs> you know, I'm recognized by the system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, that is that is crazy to me. I mean, that you of all people would be like, well, this blue check makes me, f-. I mean, th- th- 
there are enough things in the first paragraph of your Wikipedia page, you know, which confer much higher status on you than that blue check. That's true. But, you know, I yeah, the book, Twitter is the thing I interact I, I interact right. with for a you know, long time. But, right. Or in many days. I mean, well, de- decreasing recently, but, um, you know, it was. And, uh, like, Wikipedia, I almost never look at. Uh, but uh, there was definitely this uh, kind of, you know, sort of modern Bailey thing uh, going on where sort of the arguments defending blue checks is like, oh, these people, like these people need to be protected against being impersonated. But then, you know, the Bailey is like, oh, I like actually as a status symbol. Right. Right. But like the negative side of it, though, is that I think he really deeply mishandled the transition. Right. There was a lot of fraud happening, uh, you know, at the beginning, the whole, um, there wasn't, you know, like really much actual verification going on. I mean, mm-hmm. I think the verification isn't really good enough even today, but right? mm-hmm. it's like, uh, you know, you can be all kinds of crazy say, uh, things in your name and like uh, still get a blue check mark. And like, I'm not sure what it is now. I do remember like at the beginning of the year, like it was even explicitly mentioned that the blue check isn't doing any kind of like actual, yeah. you know, KYC or whatever. It's just saying like it's, pr- it's proving that you paid. And yeah. I remember there was a self, like, someone made the arguments that like, oh, you know, just the facts that it costs $8 a month should be enough of a deterrent and it ended up just like not being true at all. Right. Yeah. So right. like a blue check system where anyone can, you know, participate in their sphere terms for everyone. And it actually does the verification of, um, you know, checking that like you are the person that, uh, you know, your profile name claims mm-hmm. to be like that's uh but yeah, I think that would work well. I think the way uh, they thought about it, and I was only involved very briefly, things might have changed, is that mm. uh, they they pushed off the verification um, to the credit card handling. And the idea was that if you were reported and caught uh, for any such thing, um, the credit card fraud processing pipeline, you know, Apple Pay, et cetera, et cetera, will make it so much harder for you to come back and be a bad actor. So, so that is kind of the but that solves for the trolls and like the 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 spam bots, but not so much for like actually credible people. Like you know, like yeah. the reason why you use blue checks yeah. is to kind of figure out who like are they who they say they are. Like you know, yeah, yeah, is yeah, Vitalik yeah. like the actual person as opposed to giving away yeah. hands of ETH in but, our but, comments? Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. By the way, for the record, Vitalik is not giving away ETH uh, <laughs> in your comments. But I think it's an original tragedy. Before we move on, like there's an original tragedy because the original feature was meant to be, you know, impersonation. Right. But given that it was operationally complex to do so, it very quickly became this person ha- is important as deemed by the priests at Twitter. Right. And then Facebook copied it and the Instagram copied it and everyone copied it. So it kind of became this class system, which is a whole mess. Okay. Yeah, but there's kind of value in that. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. I was. Uh, I think a lot of people are sad. They were like, "Well, now the peasants are here." They were. That's what they were sad about. Um, okay, I want to. Uh, Wait, yeah, was there anything else? Or tell, like, if you were given control of Twitter, yeah, yeah. would you? Would you? Sure. What would yeah, we do? Yeah, I'm trying to think what other what other things. Uh, okay, community notes was was something that I like. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, like it, it seems like it actually does a yeah, a good job of uh, you know yeah giving context to a lot of, uh, a lot of things yeah. Um, I mean, I it, it, at least yeah. it uh, saves me some Googling where I'm like, wait, really? And then it's like there's community notes where I'm like, oh, okay, you just saved me a bunch of trouble of just like looking this up. So I, I find it valuable. Right, exactly. I think that's good. Um, I think, uh, I mean, Elon's whole thing of like, what was it? Uh, back, I mean, back in December, like blocking, um, you know, like links going to Mastodon and other things. Like mm. I thought that was uncool. Um, but then mm. I thought that he was uh, 
willingness to like basically put uh, you know his own neck under the guillotine of public opinion and make a fool of like should I ever place myself yeah. as CEO like I found that deeply honorable but then what I found less honorable is sort of the lack of uh, of follow-up I mean eventually there was follow-up right and that like event like that did impress me that is a new like, CEO that that is a new CEO but maybe you could debate like who has you know sort of the ultimate brains on things but that is a new CEO uh now for yeah. uh, sure I do think in his credit I disagreed with the bastion link I do think he's very good about reversing uh decisions when I, mean, I think Paul Graham had disagreed yeah. with him and he reversed that uh, uh right. and uh which I think is an interesting thing because you know, one thing I would say for Elon I don't always agree with him I agree with him a lot is that it is no longer unclear who is making the decision. In the old Twitter, or sometimes, right, you're going to have this faceless corporate blog post, which is like, a decision has been made in passive voice. Yeah. Like, if Elon, it's clear, like, he's make the call. If you want to hate somebody, it's him. He's on the line, which I really appreciate. I want to talk about ChatGPT. I know you've been spending a lot of time, you know, you you in Silicon Valley, I think maybe several months ago, you kind of talk, you, I know you, you kind of talked to folks at OpenAI and some of the others. Kind of curious about just your take on all things GPT-4, chat GPT, and kind of the broader conversation around risk. We just had Mark Andreessen come on the show. It's not out yet, but kind of Mark kind of wrote this blog post about like basically saying the doomers are, you know, kind of down with the doomers. Let's go build as much as possible. So A, your thoughts on chat GPT, GPT-4, and still the AI, and B is this whole space of risk, safety, alignment. That stuff is... Uh challenging and you know very deep in a lot, in a yeah. bunch of ways right i think uh in chat gpt right now right it's uh in terms of just like the capabilities of the current thing right like it's um, always important to sort of not get too uh, catastrophic um, on it right like it's uh, it can do a lot of things but there is a huge amount of things that it still can't do and like i've used it myself right and i found that you know there are specific tasks that it's good at but then there's a lot of tasks that it's like only good at 90% of the time, but you still have to check it over, right? Mm-hmm. There's uh, some tasks that it's still not not good at at all. Like when I use it for coding, I think I what I have to do is explain what I want in English. It gives me back something with mistakes. And sometimes I ask it to fix the mistakes. And sometimes I just go into the code and fix the mistakes myself, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, one of the positive aspects of this is that I think it's a uh, a good example of how, like, instead of AI killing 30% of the jobs, which would be catastrophic and terrible, it's like AI is killing 30% of your job, which is like actually an amazing time saver, Mm. right? And now, to be clear, like, I don't think that's a stable thing that's going to hold forever, like, especially once AI approaches, um, you know, much closer to human capabilities in in a broader way, like, there are going to be much, you know, much more specific people whose jobs get replaced completely, right? But for at least this kind of, you know, this stage one of the, yeah, the last section of the sprint to human level AI, like it's, uh, like that aspect of things is interesting, right? Like how it's, uh, you know, in, it's empowering people with more than replacing people, at least so far. You know, there are definitely cases where it's uh, replacing people too, right? And I definitely, yeah, you know, hope that, uh, you know, that we can kind of adapt to much more of that happening proactively, right? But just like seeing that other that other side is um, interesting. Yeah, there are other places where I feel like it's not happening enough, and it's starting to happen. Like one of my disagreements is with the way that things like Stable Diffusion were released. Is that the way that Stable Diffusion was released at the beginning, right? Was that 
basically you type in one sentence and mm. or whatever your prompt is and it just gives you a thing mm. and like if the use case is you look at a thing in order to be impressed and dazzled then like it gives you that and it does an amazing job of that if your use case is i need an image that contains specific things for a specific application it's like actually really horrible at that right mm. like there's always a couple of things that are wrong that are not what you wanted in ways that you were not able to like think about ahead of time and like what you want is you want the ability to edit right like what you right. want is that kind of interactive workflow of like okay you know give me this picture of a of a, you know a couple of uh, people um in a forest where one of them is holding a, a qr code and the other person is scanning it it's like no i didn't i don't want the hands to look like that retry the hands and like no I actually want this. I actually want this tree to be a bit higher because it's more beautiful. And like, do you want the like interactive state? Right? Yeah. And like, early forms of stable dif you know, like diffusion and those kinds of things, because of their choice to present themselves as being like full image generators instead of in being interactive tools, like they both, I think, needlessly amplified this kind of scare of am I going to be replaced? Yeah. Right. Where uh, and they yeah also just like were less useful as products right mm -hmm. but then like what i want is not a full image a full thing that generates an image by itself what i want is like better photoshop yeah. and the newer versions do seem to be moving in the direction of like being better photoshop right right like i think that the story and the thing happening that we don't want to see it is like artists getting replaced the thing that i want to see it is someone in it's an author instead of just being able to write a novel also being able to personally make a movie right right like i would love to see the cost of making a movie go down from a hundred thousand dollars to like one person with uh basically just his creativity and a couple of uh, yeah. months with uh, with an AI platform right like if we yeah. do that then like you know we actually yeah you know get to disrupt hollywood and um, you know we get to like get away from all of these uh you know horrible remixes of so like um you know marvel fights king kong with a bat with a touch of uh and you know star trek versus star wars on the side yeah and like you know get to like actual real stories and like you know reflecting like different people's values instead of just an events that you know and attempts to like try to please everyone but end up pleasing no one yeah and yeah but but what that kind of like enhancement of existing individual creativity like that excites me right and like that's very different from you know ai replacing a person which is yeah. uh it's what the narrative shifted and it's what the early versions of the technology looked more like and yes. so i think yeah like some of the stuff that kind of involves a lot more kind of you know pinging back and forth between i uh, had kind of human input and yeah. um, you know that the yeah llm or the diffusion like that's better yeah so that's like short and medium term right yeah. Medium to long term is like, is this stuff going to kill all of us? Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, uh, I mean, one answer I'd have to that is like, I don't know. I see these really compelling arguments from the AI risk people, but then like we've had a, yeah, a long multi-hundred year history of people pr predicting all kinds of really awful consequences to the next wave of technology. And like what's happened over and over again for centuries is we adapt, right? Mm. And you, I think you can make a strong case that like this new wave really is different. Like we're not just, uh, you know, replacing one or two faculties of ice humans in a way that can easily work together with us. It's like, no, you know, this is creating a new and higher form of intelligence. And like, that's, that's like scary in a way that the yeah, world hasn't seen for like hundreds of a uh, hundred thousand years. Right. 
like this set the human to like the human to superhuman AI transition, like that level of transition, I would argue this only happened basically three or four times in the history of the Earth. Right before that, we had the monk the monkey to human transition. Before that, um, you know, we had the yeah single cellular to multicellular life transition, and before that, we had the no life to life transition. Yeah. Like, like literally, yeah, I mean, it was basically three transitions on that same order, and so in each of those really fundamentally rearranged the earth in uh, deep ways, right? And so AI obviously will fundamentally rearrange the earth in deep ways. And often those rearrangements, they were not friendly to the stuff that existed before, right? Like uh, humans com coming to dominate the earth has been horrible for a lot of animal and plant species that have existed before, right? So I feel like I get their arguments and like I get the reasons to believe the things that they believe. And I also, you know, get... Mm -hmm. the arguments on the, um, on the other side. And so I think right now I find myself uh, like definitely um, you know, on the side of wanting to support much more research into creating more aligned AIs, definitely wanting to support much more research in creating AI systems that work more closely with humans that are better at incorporating human intention and uh, you know, don't go off on like long planning loops on their own. Mm -hmm. um, definitely, yeah, I mean, I want to see more... Um, like work on like if there's some kind of reasonable regulation that like slows down the really dangerous stuff but uh, you know at the same time doesn't uh, you know ban like you know open source stuff that's happening on people's laptops and uh, then like definitely yeah I'm you know interested in that um, but uh, you know at the same time like there's like don't want to see something that ends up just like going after totally the wrong things and doesn't actually solve the big problems. Right? Like in some ways, that uh, like the worst outcome that can happen is if uh, the government uh, tries really hard to um, you know regulate AI to prevent people from saying mean things on the internet, but at the same time it gets adopted by militaries. That's a very a likely scenario, and a very real scenario is you get a hostile government, uh, you know, or what we would perceive a hostile government in the U.S. Uh, to adopt it, and they are not going to, you know, listen to our restrictions on floating point operations. So that I also think yeah. uh, in a lot of these cases, while I I appreciate that the intentions are pure and genuine on like alignment, I just worry that it is just deeply incentivized for like the 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 bigger companies, the incumbents to like to have this in their advantage, and it's like less advantages for startups to be able to innovate because more regulation and more alignment and more of these regulatory bodies kicking in almost always in history has helped the bigger companies and uh, has always prevented yeah. smaller scrappier more like innovative mm -hmm. companies to like push through because there's just so much barrier to entry mm -hmm. now and i worry yeah. that even before you kick off this whole wave of tremendous ai innovation you're just going to get like all of these startups just getting curtailed because of just like regulation uh yeah. and just all of this policies kicking in yeah yeah, yeah, I, I definitely worry about that. Like, I think it's it is hypothetically possible to you know make regulation that only applies for uh, you know computing clusters of a yet you know very large size and uh, like we use individuals alone mm -hmm. and all of that. But the the question is like you know does it like would actually existing politics lead to that? Yeah, yeah no, I agree with that. Uh, one last question I had, and this is kind of a total uh, shift mm -hmm. in uh, transition. Mm -hmm. Um, one of or a couple of my favorite blog posts that you've ever written, and I'll give you the context mm -hmm. on this, uh, is on ZKs, uh, ZK Snarks, mm -hmm. and you talked about uh, privacy. 
and you know you'd also in the three transitions part you'd also talked about privacy especially around mm-hmm. identity uh both both Shreya and I you know we've spent years working on social media social media networks mm-hmm. i spent a lot of time building communities and community systems and so the part you know i was very unaware of this whole ecosystem uh of of the kesnarks um until i read your posts to me what really caught my eye was around negative reputation and building a reputation system and how you could have you know like the chaining posts like the basics of it so i had to go through the whole math of it which is like really dense but really fun and interesting so i guess like you know just rolling up you know all the way back 5 years ago Uh, yeah probably 5 years ago if you'd looked at this you'd have said you know a normal person would have said wow like you literally call this moon math right um really complex it just the computation time for all of these just kind of crazy mm-hmm. looking for like looking at you know the progress in the last 5ish years would you have been surprised like 5 years ago uh looking at just a tremendous base yeah. of like you know innovation and what do you see as a future for zk snarks and zk such Yeah, I mean, very surprised. Like, I've basically yeah, made an analogy before many times between uh, ZK Snarks and uh, Transformers, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. you know, the yeah, the AI thing that mm-hmm. uh, LLMs are based on now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, that like, like, you know, like the thing that Transformers did, right, is they basically like took, you know, hundreds of very smart people's many years worth of uh, like application-specific work that they put years into on solving specific problems and basically said like, hey, Let's throw up the trash. Let's uh, just uh, do a few matrix multiplies on the entire internet, and like this new thing just, mm-hmm. that's like 200 lines of like stupid written code, just mm-hmm. that like totally beats all your benchmarks on like half of everything, mm-hmm. right? And ZK Snarks are kind of the same for crypto. Like there were these very deep and complicated problems that I remember personally spending months on. Right? Like one of these uh, is that. Uh, There was this earlier scaling solution before rollups called Plasma mm. that was uh, basically yeah, trying to do scalability for payments by doing this kind of on-chain, off-chain um, hybrid thing. Mm. And one of the big challenges there was uh, this problem of defragmentation, right? It's like in order for Plasma to work, you have to like actually treat every coin kind of as a um, as a separate nft and like you don't own you know what 50,000 coins in the abstract it's like you own coins number 90,000 through 139,999 right. and the problem is like as people receive and send payments to each other like you give away a slice of your coins in one place then other people you get you get coins you get coins in a totally in a totally different place and that uh, eventually like your coins get split between many fragments and it just becomes more and more expensive to make payments. Right. Now, I spent months on this problem. ZK snarks trivial. You just make a snark of a permutation and you're done, right? That kind of uh, events if you want to have ZK EVMs for example. Yeah. The uh, issue with uh, ZK EVMs is uh, basically uh, just prove that EVM execution is correct. and they potentially can reduce the size that you need to run a fully verified node of a system for like this really big thing that requires like basically an entire labs up so just like something that could trivially run on a phone mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. like the the ethereum clients of 10 years in the future i expect are going to basically be systems where you download 3.6 megabytes from the internet yeah. you hash it you run a couple of polynomial equations done verified Yeah, 3.6 more megabytes. Mash it. Run a polynomial equation. Mm-hmm. Done. 
right? Mm-hmm. And it's just like a very, um, you know, lightweight, very simple, a few hundred lines of code to verify sort uh, or for uh, most of an entire client sort of thing, right? And it just like massively increases that possibilities in a way that was totally not possible before, right? Mm-hmm. And on the privacy side, it's the same, right? Like if you remember privacy back in 2015, that's like, oh, you know, we had coin join and oh, we have stealth addresses and oh, we have uh, this, uh, you know, complicated bulletproof thing and we yes. have this like mix in and you need to go through many different mix ins to get enough privacy. And like the privacy properties are actually difficult to calculate. And Ian Myers found this like weird thing where if you make two payments to a merchant, so that's often enough for them to de-anonymize you. Mm. And, and like, there's this hot mess. And then you go and have ZK Starks. And with ZK Starks, you can just prove whatever thing you want. Right? Yes. Yeah. And like, you can even do crazy stuff that like, for example, you prove that these coins that you have are coins from someone who entered the system, but you at the same time prove that those coins did not come from a known list of DeFi hacks. Mm-hmm. Right? So like you could give people privacy and at the same time, like solve a large class of problems that regulators have, right? And like these kinds of uh, things are just like amazing, right? And there's a lot that we can do. Like I actually think that if we add the privacy components, then the whole institutional block, like enterprise government blockchain thing, like it goes back to being viable again, yeah. right? Because yes. like if all you're doing is like just that uh, providing transparency and authenticity and like that set, like that's not enough, right? Like that's uh, right. for a lot of applications where trust already exists. The kind of distrust that exists is not like distrust about people running the database incorrectly. It's yeah. usually distrust about privacy, right? Yes. And so yeah. if you bring in the zero knowledge proofs, then like suddenly those things actually, yeah, you know, start making much more sense again, right? So I am super excited about Synarchs for both the uh, scalability and the privacy applications, and I'm excited to see where that all. It's it's amazing. I think the momentum in just short years and uh, and just amazing smart people doing this is it's fantastic. Okay, you know one thing that kind of strikes me is you obviously you're so generous in giving credit to a lot of others in the Ethereum ecosystem from like you know Brick and you know Dankrad and a bunch of others. And you know that is a world when ETH finishes its roadmap. And obviously, you know the point of the whole roadmap is you don't have dramatic quick changes. You have stable changes. What does Vitalik Buterin work on then? When is your job done? In that case, where do you go off in your floppy hat and what do you go work on? Keep on working on my blog, eventually turn it into a proper Switch Circodex competitor. I don't know. <laughs> I like it. Or, or less wrong. Like, you know, or, or, uh, yeah, uh, or less wrong than less wrong could be good too. Thank, thank you so much. This is truly a delight. And I just want to say, you know, uh, you know, I think for a lot of us in the crypto community, just thank you for everything you've done. Uh, you should come back and see us. And for folks listening, A, Vitalik is not giving you money in your Twitter replies. And if you see... A man in a hat, you know, maybe leave him alone yeah. uh, 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 until you really yeah. want to go talk to him. Then go talk to him. But yeah, uh, Vitalik, this is a yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This, this was, was such a, fun. Thank thanks you so, so much, much for the talk.